the Jamstack community survey. As you noted, it's been a busy week. We had the Jamstack conference last week, and we actually did an episode last week at a different time than usual. We scheduled it during the conference. We had it live on the show floor with Alex from Uniform talking about the conference. But now we've basically had a little bit longer time to retrospect on how the conference went and think back on it. But one of the highlights that came out was the Jamstack community survey. And they, they put this survey out once a year and they usually send it out every, every year just before the conference with the latest trends. But given that we've had a week like to reflect on it, let's consider back what we thought the biggest takeaways, both from the survey and from the conference were. And the one that I, I would say jumps out to me immediately and was clear on the stage if I'd say there's any two themes from the conference. One was, the, was clear when you look at all the talks. There was talks about using the edge for personalization. There were talks about using the edge and databases, which is really looking ahead because the a lot of that is emergent. And the way this dovetails with the community survey in the first area is the rise of serverless. So if you go to the community survey, and I don't know if you get a chance, Scott, if you can put that link up there. And if you go to the survey. Yeah, I'm in, in the process of getting Yeah. There. So serverless technology, the number of people who have used serverless technology jumped to 70%, taking it to fully mainstream. And the reason that's significant, so there's been this generation, there's been a couple shifts of kind of computing technology in the cloud. When we went from on-prem to cloud, the interface for the developer in terms of how they dealt with computing and storage was the same way they had dealt with physical servers, which is I had a physical server with a CPU and a disk. When I go and I'm in AWS or similar hyperscaler, as they say, I've got the same type of thing. I've got a virtual CPU and a virtual disk. There's, it's basically the same thing, except I can now distribute them virtually. There isn't a new abstraction layer on top of them. Whereas with serverless, what you say is I don't have to think at all about, you know, how many servers I have and how I'm going to organize them. I just give the serverless platform my function and that's it. And then it figures out what it needs to scale up or scale down in response to traffic. And it's a much simpler interface to leverage cloud technologies. You don't think about memory. You don't think, now that doesn't mean they don't matter. And if you've used it at scale in any point, you do have to go in and optimize it. But from a deployment standpoint, you're not thinking in terms of, of servers. And so the fact that serverless technology has jumped into fully mainstream is really relevant when we look at edge adoptions. Because if you look at all the edge platforms that are emerging out there, they don't force you to think again in servers. Their interface to the developer is you give me the function and we'll figure out where and how to run it at the edge. Which makes a lot of sense when you think about what an edge platform typically is. It's like a cloud platform, except it's even more distributed. There are even more servers under the hood you have to deal with. It would be even harder to manage. And so the fact that serverless technology jumped into adoption is, I think, speaks to both the readiness to adopt edge and also that the edge is going to, at least the edge platforms we're seeing emerge, are going to have an interface that'll be readily taken up by this new generation of Jamstack developers. So let me pause there, see if anybody has any questions or thoughts or comments. Okay, then I'll keep going. So that was the first one that jumped out at me. The second one, which I tweeted out, was there's a moment during the conference where Lori, who was giving the presentation, 
says, he shows a graph and he's, he says, I know my job as a data scientist is to say, look at this graph. And then he pauses, he's, but look at this graph. It was the number of developers that are now re working remotely. And in fact, it's something like four to five developers are now working remotely most of the time. And more than half would say they would quit if they have to go back to an office. So that's a real sea change in a short amount of time. And when I tweeted that out, it got, I think, the most traction I've had recently in a while for a tweet. So it definitely resonated with a lot of people. Um, I'm, I'm curious for any of the listeners in the audience, if, if you feel that matches what your perception or not is, feel free to raise your hand. I'd love to hear about that. My own perspective is a little skewed because where I've worked was actually remote first since 2016, 2017. So when the pandemic hit, we were already remote first. And it was definitely an interesting transition then because we were really at the bleeding edge. Now it seems much more accepted. But we've started to see some clawbacks. I think notably, I think Twitter ended it. And I remember we've seen in the decades before that, IBM had did, done it and they pulled it back. Yahoo famously had done it and pulled it back. So I've seen it wax and wane uh, before, but it does feel like there's been a sea change that it's more acceptable now and it may very well be here to stay. So that was the second thing that jumped out from the community survey that I thought was fascinating and seemed to get a lot of traction and interest. So again, if folks have just even to interject your own personal experience with working remotely and if you think it's going to stay or it's going to change, feel free to raise your hand. Or if there's something else in the community survey, and if you can put up that link, Scott, we can let people browse through it and see what else jumps out at them. Yeah, I was trying to put up the newsletter link, but I don't have it on think so. I'm just going to go ahead and put that link up. Yeah, directly to the survey. Okay, great. I, I'll be curious if folks agree or disagree that it, it's definitely here to stay. But it, Despite companies clawing back, uh, I think it's going to be more accepted. Given the economic climate we're moving into, it's quite possible we do see more significant pullback from remote, but I don't think it's going back to the way it was pre-pandemic. I think there's definitely a segment of developers that have adopted this new way of working and feel comfortable with it. Looks like we got someone coming up to the stage. I, I don't want to, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to reinforce what you were saying about remote work here to, being here to stay. I had heard a couple of, again, anecdotal points from some people I know that work at some more beaten down mid-tier companies where their stock price is down 80, 90% and the CEO is similar to what Elon's doing, starting to push for in-person and getting back into the office. And like removing remote work as an option, especially for new hires. So where they do have an office, they are forcing people to be in it, or at least trying to. Whereas the for certain sets of the employees, not necessarily universal, maybe what's going on at Twitter. So it's a little yeah. That's the inevitable pushback. It's like there was a segment. I remember when everyone was adopting remote. And I felt was there, there's going to be a backlash and that backlash will come when the economic macroeconomic environment gets tougher. And we're just, I don't think it's a necessity that companies have to do this, but I think when you, it's like a, you hit a panic state and then you just go to what, and we're not used to, to managing people remotely. We don't have a cultural practice around it unless you've been used to it really for a long time. And when Yahoo pulled back, I think it was like two decades ago, or maybe it was a decade and a half, from 
being allowing remote work, it was again when they were not doing well. And it's the first thing that the people pull back on to, to somewhat understandable reasons, because again, we're not, we don't have as much management practice around it. Sorry, I think somebody else also came up. Hi, Sean. Hi, Scott. Hey, hey Jason. Yeah, so actually what Jason said made me want to actually say something, uh, chime in. I, I actually, now I forgot what he said exactly. I was, sorry, I was doing a little video editing over here. Yeah, I, I'm really anti-office work. I, I worked in office for a decade or so and had a couple of uh, stints of, of, of remote work and then go back in the office for a short, for a bit after I was remote for a couple of years or whatever. And it was such a, it was such a cultural uh, shock, like, I, I didn't realize how comfortable I was at home just being able to swivel around in my chair and go to the fridge and get some coffee out of the fridge. Just joking. No, but and just it just work on my own terms versus in an office. I felt like very self-aware and constrained. And I just I, I don't I don't want to hurt the relationship that I have with the clients and my fellow my peers or whoever. So I'm like really like sensitive but it ends up being it ends up making me like a nervous wreck and i can't actually work around other people it's an unfortunate kind of situation so honestly i'm uh, also a trucker so i will i would rather just long haul in a truck by myself rather than being mm-hmm. with people yeah interesting that's a really useful anecdote i can i can totally understand if you're just as going remote seemed foreign to people because there are plenty of people who are like I'm not used to being in my office all day and not having in-person interaction. I can see it going the other way as well. I'll say this, having been remote for a very long period of time, it's it's a trade-off. It's not all roses. I remember when, I think it was Heat and Shaw, and this was pre-pandemic, people were asking about remote. And he's, he actually said something to the extent of, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. Because there are certain things that get harder to do. To do. And... I know, for example, when we have, before the pandemic and now coming out of the pandemic, we've started doing off-sites where we get everyone together. And there are certain things we can only get done or that get done faster when you put like a bunch of us in a room. And then we go out to dinner and we're still talking about it and we'll be diagramming ideas. It's just, there's so much energy. And maybe it's just because it's all been pent up until we, we meet on site. And so I think there's a certain potential that you get from everyone being in the same room. I don't know if you can sustain that over the long term. And the other challenge you have with remote is time zones. And if you ask me what I think the ideal scenario is, it's, I don't know how to describe it. I've used the word cluster model, which is you pick like a geographic area and you say, we'll hire people. Our team will be for this core team that's responsible for this area all lives in, let's call it a five to six hour, you know, drive away from some metropolitan center. And then they can work remotely whenever. But if you have a launch coming up or some something emerges, you can say, hey, we're going to rent out some hotel rooms for three days or four days, and we'll just do an onsite and then Avengers assemble and push that launch out. Because sometimes when you're in that crunch mode of launching something out, it's really important to have everyone in a room and cranking things out. And so that you can flexibly move back and forth would be really great. And also, I think, solves the time zone issue. Any other thoughts? Uh, Thanks, folks, for sharing so far. I think that the thing that surprised me is, so our client base for the the company I work for is large tech, large non-tech companies. So think finance medical, insurance, lots of companies like that. They were going remote for the first time because of COVID. 
And we before the pandemic, we'd get a lot of demand for our consultants to go on site. We were expecting that to come back and it hasn't yet. So a lot of our, what you think is old stodgy companies, they haven't gone back to the office yet, or at least not. Really? Yeah, at least in the sample set that I have. And you'd think that we're talking big finance companies in out of New York. They're not saying, hey, fly to New York and spend the time inside of our four walls yet. We haven't seen any, at least in our subset, any demand for that yet, which is surprising. I figured we'd already be back on the road by now. Yeah, I hate to lean into that that characterization of them, but I would have thought they were the first ones to snap back. That's very interesting. Maybe they've realized it, it's a good way to differentiate from the other companies that have, and then nobody wants to be the first. You touched on something actually earlier that I, I toyed with and I considered putting on the agenda, but the data was still emerging, which is in this macroeconomic environment, we've seen layoffs from Twitter, from Meta. I just saw Amazon is laying them off and there's what is what are you seeing just in, what are folks and feel free again raise your hand seeing in in the market either from friends or just from what in your feed in terms of it feels like there's been a pivot and not just benefits like remote but you know other things potentially going away making it harder for people to potentially move up or to break into the tech field what are you guys seeing Okay, well, that's something we can maybe cover in a future episode. So moving on to the rest of the community survey for Jamstack community, we saw continued, and this is, I would say, the third theme that jumped out. And you saw this on stage as well as in the survey, which was the framework wars. And the framework wars seem to be React and Next versus everyone else. If you look at the survey, React continued to grow. I think they said, I'm pulling it up right now, 71% share of developers. And Next.js is now they had something nearly like half of developers have used Next.js. So, you know, Next and React seem like they're at a very strong position. On the other hand, when you talk to people in the hallway track and when you looked on stage, you saw a lot of these alternative frameworks as potential emergent challengers. Um, one of them they highlighted in the talk, and I'd encourage you to watch it, they thought, for example, Vue and Nuxt would be challengers. It turns out that based on the way they categorize the data, they're not so confident that's going to happen. The growth there has actually slowed. But there are other frameworks like, for example, Solid and Astro making gains in terms of popularity, again, from a smaller base. And those seem to be picking up. And so it does seem people have talked about a potential post-React world to solve some of the challenges that we have with React, especially around performance, as well as around developer experience. Things like hooks seem to mess people up. And so these, these frameworks are presenting a potential alternative. Sorry, Jason, what were you going to say? Oh, okay. It looks like that might have been accidental off mute. And what remains to be seen is will React, how will React respond to those challengers? Will they adopt some of those features or will they go in a different direction? And I don't think it was called out on stage, but in what I would call the hallway track from talking to people, they felt like the key pivot point here is React server components. And there's a good argument here for why that would be. And the their argument was basically, or, or what I heard was, 
there's a lot of concern about React's performance in terms of like first load and the amount of work the virtual DOM has to do. For those who aren't aware, the React will build in memory a version of the entire page that it keeps track of every single element. And then when it updates anything, it needs to update it in its in-version memory version of it and then propagates it to the real DOM. And sometimes that adds performance advantages if you've got a lot of changes. But on first load, it means they have to keep track of this build and keep track of this giant in-memory representation of the page. And it has to bind all the handlers for when things get clicked and things like that. And they call this process hydration. React server components minimize that amount of work that the library has to do. So there's a potential performance advantage with React server components. But the concern is around developer experience. Will developers find this an easier or more complex model to work with? So one, one person I spoke to said, well, look, it may seem like a simple thing where you have to name your file .server or .client, but that's the type of thinking I haven't had to worry about before which is with React server components, that component only runs on the server. And then you might have another component that's a client-side component. And the name of the file indicates to the system which one you're going to use. But you can nest these back and forth within each other. And you now have to be much more conscious of when you're effectively server-side in a component and not. And the way you previously did this in Next was anything that was server-side was basically an API endpoint. And it was very clear. You, your component basically behaved the same client-side and server-side. As far as the component logic was concerned, it was identical because it still just made an API call the same way it always did. And I have read Malta, who's now, he was the creator of AMP, he's now at Vercel. He made an interesting analogy. He actually said, if you squint a little, what the new model looks like with React server components is a little like how we used to code PHP. You'll be in the section of coding up like a component and you can make a request out to say your database or something like that directly. And it will be executed server side, just like you might do in PHP, you'd embed an SQL query, and then you can start changing stuff in there. And so there are models who have had this before, but we've moved away from them. And it'll be really interesting to see if people adopt that. There are other alternative ways to solve the same problem. So, for example, Astro and Preact have something called islands architecture, where the individual components only hydrate as they come into view or as the user clicks on them. And that's another way to reduce the amount of JavaScript that gets sent over. And it's a potentially easier model for developers to, to deal with because they don't have to think about, is this code executed on the server or does it execute on the client? That's that was the, the really interesting part of the framework, kind of framework wars. And there was, I would say, a subtext here, which is there was concern of, I don't know what the right word is, but in environmental regulations, they have this thing called regulatory capture, which is what was supposed to be the unbiased arbiter or regulation gets manipulated by outside interests. And some of the most popular frameworks, although not, not React, are essentially largely contributed and controlled by single companies. And what does that mean for their status as independent open source projects? So far, we haven't seen anything too suspicious on that, but there have been people who, who voice concern in the hallway track 
In fact, two episodes ago, we had somebody voice a similar concern. It's definitely, it feels like a semi-taboo. It's like an unspoken thing on people's minds. And you definitely hear people talking and thinking about what does that mean for these open source projects? So let me pause there, see if folks have any questions or thoughts on anything we talked about so far on the Jamstack community survey. Oh, it looks like Theo joined. Hey, Theo. So that was the community survey. I don't know where you jumped in on. We were just reviewing the findings from the community survey. Was there anything that jumped out to you from the survey that surprised you or confirmed yeah. things for you? I just found something funny, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll let it go over to David here in a second. Yeah. But if you go on, the, if you go down and scroll down. So I put a link up in the, up here on Twitter in our session here. If you click on that, it takes you to the framework section of the survey. Yeah. But if you scroll down a little bit and go to smaller frameworks by usage and satisfaction, which is like Remix, Nest, ViewPress, SolidJS, all these. <laughs> oh, there it is. Oh, I couldn't see it for a second. So what? Redwood JS, I was like, where is it? There's no bubble. And then I realized it's right under Blitz, number 12. So you can't see it. They're on top of each other. <laughs> the satisfaction score and usage score is the exact same for Redwood and Blitz. It's kind of yes. And both of them, it's notable. And I think they called this out yeah. in the talk. Like, of the smaller frameworks, the two to watch, they it, we have to verbally describe this graph. But and the graphs are very interesting. They have two axes. One is satisfaction score, and the one is the other one is level of usage. The ones right now that have that separate out from the pack in terms of satisfaction score, but not necessarily in terms of usage, are Blitz and Redwood JS. Yeah. It's like you see not only are Redwood and Blitz right on top of each other, but they're clearly separated out of the pack from a satisfaction score. The only other one that kind of comes close is Docusaurus. And he talked about this on stage. It makes sense because Docusaurus does only one thing. It, they're very focused on what they do Super and they niche. don't do anything else. <laughs> so it's very easy, not very easy. It's easier for them to be very tailored to that use case and make sure that developers who use it are productive as possible. That's a really interesting chart. The other one actually that's interesting, going back to what we talked about earlier in terms of the macroeconomic environment, that makes me think is the level of experience chart. And it talks about how much experience are people working in the Jamstack. And the reason I bring that up, and that a lot of it in 2021, especially, you can skewed earlier, like less than five or six. There's like a, a peak right at three or four years, especially in 2020. And then 2021, the peak is actually at one to two years. For 2022, it's about the same, but it's at the two to three year mark, let's say. And I think that partially represented over the last few years, it was a very I don't know what to say. It was a rosier macroeconomic environment. So I think it was easier to get a break into tech. And I wonder how things are going to change in the, you know, the new macroeconomic environment. It may be harder. It may be, which might actually push more people to something like the Jamstack, because that might be the easier way to onboard and then prove experience and deliver value is where you're on a platform that delivers, reduces the amount of DevOps, but it also might mean that just simply by level of experience, those positions that are entry level, now there are few of them, especially given the layoffs. I could, I sure. see it going earlier, either way, 
Yeah. Uh, but that was one of the other things I was considering about when reviewing this data is what does the impact potentially look like in 2023, a year from now, if we're in a different climate? Was there anything else, Scott, that jumped out at you when you were looking at it? Yeah, no, David, I think came up here. Oh, know, David. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Go ahead. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in because... Uh, Initially, I just had thoughts about the server components, React server components, because I don't personally work with React anymore, and I've never worked with Next, but I do work daily in Vue and Nuxt, and I have experience in both like Vue 2 and Vue 3 and Nuxt 2 and Nuxt 3. But that concept actually has been around for a while in Nuxt of server-only and client-only components. And there's two sort of flavors to that, which is using either the extension-based component. So you can have like a .client.ts or a .server.ts or .view if you're using the single file components. But the alternative though is also they have a client-only and server-only components that are globally available that you can use so that you can mix, like you were mentioning with React server components, uh, mix which portions of your component are loaded server-side only or client-side only. And I think that in terms of like the complexity it introduces and whether or not people will use it will come a lot down to the use case, the actual like individual's use case. I'm working in a commercial setting. Those performance benefits are huge. Like we do server-side rendering for all of our applications. And therefore we really, most of the time, I think building something that's isomorphic is best so that it can be rendered on like the server or the client. And then just using the actual lifecycle hooks of a component, and this could apply to React or Vue, but using the lifecycle hooks of the component is where you can do your separation of what needs to happen server-side and what needs to happen client-side. But that's not always feasible. And especially, there's definitely libraries out there that you might pull in where it's not built to be isomorphic or it's not built to be server-side rendered. And that's where these utilities really come in when you need to step outside of the framework and say, I need to use this utility, but it only works in the browser. And so I'm gonna make this a client only component or this library only works in the server. So it's gonna be a server only component. There are a couple of things there I wanna key off of. First is, I totally agree with you on the performance benefit. We've seen similar things for clients running on our platform. The server side rendering is really important for, for first page load, especially our clients who are in e-commerce. They definitely value that capability a lot. I'm not, I haven't really played around much with Vue, especially Nuxt, that much. My understanding, though, is their server components, they render on the server and then they're done. Whereas with React server components, not only do they render on the server and then they go out to the browser, but it holds the connection open so that the server component can actually update its data asynchronously and stream it back to the client. So you can have a server component that says, it might say, for example, what your current score or cart total is. And it may not have that information. It has to go out to your session database. And so it'll put like a placeholder and then that'll render out to the browser and it'll be sent down the wire. And then some point later, it has already fired off a request to get what your cart total is. And it can continue to send that over and it will get updated in place without having to have a reload. I don't, my impression and understanding is they don't have an equivalent to that in Vue. Is that accurate or not? I can't say for Vue, but I believe that's accurate for Nuxt. I believe the Nuxt framework does not have a solution for that at the moment. And actually what's interesting is it makes me think a lot about if there's anyone here in the Rails ecosystem, because we use Rails as our backend, it makes me think of Turbo and Hotwire, which is a similar technology where essentially you're taking server rendered pages and then applying essentially a, an Ajax component 
to just a portion of your page. And in this case, it's instead of a server rendered page, it's talking about a an actual component um, via some sort of component framework, but sounds like the same sort of technology, same sort of solution. It's very interesting. It's a little bit different. So Turbo is, it renders out as raw HTML is my understanding, but it has no sense of the state of the item. Whereas what React server components will send down the wire is actually a binary representation of the component with its state and its memory in place. And so it actually, it's doing more than just replacing the HTML. It's actually changing, it actually has more sense of things than Turbo does. But there, I can totally understand the analogy and maybe my impression of React Server components is not fully accurate either. But Turbo is very interesting, especially given the other thing we were planning to talk about today and we're right past the halfway point, which is the transition element API. So I think that's a good seg to go into Astro and the shared element transition API, which potentially points to a future that we don't have to build as many single page apps as we thought. Let me explain why I think this is so interesting and so important. There was a talk actually at last year's Jamstack conference that was done by Rich Harris, the creator of Svelte. And he basically was arguing, it was titled, I think, Transitional Apps. And we're at this weird inflection point in web development. We've had, when the web was first created, we had what are now known as multi-page apps. That is when you click a link on a page, it reloads the entire page for each thing. So when you go from, I guess the early days, it was Yahoo or Craigslist. Craigslist is a great example. You click on one link in Craigslist, it loads the entire new page when you go from one category to the next. And then you have the rise more recently of single page apps. The canonical example of this is Gmail. As you're clicking through those emails, the whole page doesn't reload just the parts of the page that need to change. And when you do a search, it only fetches and fills in the data that's missing. And we've had attempts to bridge these two worlds. The multi-page app is easier to engineer. And in some cases on first load, we'll have better first load performance. And then single page apps have a better user experience after that first load, they behave more like a native mobile application on your phone. And it almost feels like partially in response to that, we've seen the rise of single page apps to compete with kind of the user expectations that have been set by native applications, as well as now the additional power we have as web developers with frameworks like Vue and React and Next and Nuxt that almost have these as their default. One of the attempts to bridge these two is the thing that David actually mentioned, Turbolinks, where it goes and it says, rather than fetch the whole page, when I go from one page to the next, I'm just gonna get the HTML fragment that's different and I'll put that into the page and that'll make the page load faster. And that did come out of the Rails community. And I think they expanded that, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, into something called Stimulus which is even more full-featured, but really leans into that same same approach. Yeah, yeah I did yeah. want to make one minor correction, which is I was talking about Turbo, not Turbo Links, uh -huh. which naming is terrible, but Hotwire, essentially the composite package of the three technologies of Turbo, Stimulus, and Strata is the newer technology that's not baked into Rails at mm -hmm. the moment, but it is something that you can add on. Turbo Links is baked into Rails and has been around for quite a while. But Turbo is more about actually bidirectional communication using WebSockets between the client and the server for those like streaming updates. 
Whereas Turbo Links is like the JavaScript, what would you call it? I guess like the minimal encapsulated attribute based like JavaScript you can append on to just swap out parts of the HTML. Got it. Okay, so Turbo Links is the one I'm more familiar with. And that's the one where it's the more, let's call it naive. I just do a fetch for that HTML content based on the attribute. I'll match it up to the part that it's going to replace and then put it into the DOM. Whereas Turbo is a more socket-based approach to that. Is that correct? I'm repeating back what I'm hearing. Yeah, I think looking at having very little knowledge about the React server components, I think the equivalent essentially of Turbo is the streaming aspect of React server components from what I'm seeing. So the ability to stream data back and forth. Got it. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. So then actually, let's just pause here. What are what are Strata and Hotwire I've heard of? But if you could elaborate and at least remind me, I don't recall Strata, what each of those other elements in are that are part of Stimulus. Sure. Stimulus, as you mentioned, essentially is like the new replacement for Turbo Links, which maybe that's what they should have called Turbo, and this would make a lot more sense. Turbo, again, being like the WebSocket communication layer for sending both data, but also HTML. Technically, you can that wire can be used for transmitting data in any format that you want. And then Strata is actually the one that I'm not that familiar with, but as far as I understand it, the idea is that it's a way for you to bridge sort of static server rendered components with some sort of like single page application framework or dynamic like client side framework. But that one I am, I have little experience with, so definitely worth looking up. Okay, I will have to look that one up after. This is why I love doing this is the exposure you get to so many different technologies. It may be that There's definitely an overlap here, but what's interesting about the shared transition element API is it kind of points towards a future where you could get, just like you do with either stimulus or with TurboLinks, something that has the performance and ease of developer experience and maintainability of a multi-page app, but the usability flows of and animation of a single page app. And the way it works is, and there's a great demo which we linked to in our newsletter. And that demo is built by somebody using Astro, which is a meta framework that takes a multi-page app approach, but they have a, it's like a Spotify, go through some albums and artists and you pick songs, but the entire flow feels like it's a single page app, but it's not, it's entirely built as, well, it isn't. It's entirely built as a multi-page app using Astro and this new API that Chrome has pushed, which unfortunately still you have to manually enable and they're trying to get other browsers to adopt. But what it does is it basically says, as you transition from one page to the next, you can describe what that transition looks like between one click to the next page so that you can make it feel like it's a single page app, even though it's not. If you're on Craigslist and you click from one page to the next, what it does is it basically waits for some of the data to come through and then it just clears the screen and draws the new page. And if you think about what makes that single page app experience really great is that you see only parts of the page change that need to. And the way the API works is It basically, it's actually a really clever hack because it takes a screenshot of the page before. It literally takes an internal screenshot and takes a screenshot of the page after. And it lets you describe which parts of that screenshot need to disappear or merge out and merge in so that it seems like you've never really even transitioned the page. 
So it's giving you, the developer, control over what happens when somebody clicks a link in a way we really even had before without having to take over the whole single page app experience. There's some caveats, but let me pause and see if that made sense to folks. Okay, there's no better picture is worth a thousand words and a demo is worth an order of magnitude more. So check out the link in the newsletter. Yeah, um, it's linked above as well yeah. as in the newsletter. So the newsletter is the latest link up there. And if you swipe over two times, you actually see the demo as well. Linked. So yeah, that that demo is, there's a link to a live demo. You can see the code. And what you have is, it's like a Spotify experience, but it was built using a multi-page app framework. There's a couple of caveats. One of the caveats is right now, first of all, this API is entirely experimental. So no other browsers support except Chrome. And in Chrome, you actually have to go in and manually go into Chrome settings and turn this API on. The other one is the way the API is set up. And this is going to seem, it's going to seem a little deflating. It actually doesn't work in a multi-page app context. Right now, it only works in a single page app context. And so the way the demo works is it adds almost like a TurboLinks-like layer on top that captures the click events and goes and fetch the page like you would in a multi-page app for you, but the developer experience is still the same as if you're doing a multi-page app. Those caveats aside, it really points to the potential of being able to build a site in a multi-page app manner, but it's going to feel like a single page app without having a large JavaScript library to manage that for you. Okay, I think somebody came up to the stage. Did we? Oh, I'm going back down. Uh, yeah, I guess that was me. Yeah. Archibald at Google had a pretty good video on this at the developer chrome whatever the last developer chrome uh, i google io that's what i was trying to the words I was. that was the first i'd actually seen it and it was he had a pretty good clever little demo of the experimental api it looks really cool the ability to slice up different pieces of the page too so you don't have to transition the entire page just you can actually transition pieces of it and can have loading states and some other stuff so it is pretty clever yeah, actually, I'm glad you called that out. That's where I first heard about it is at Google I.O. And I think I tweeted it out. And I was like, if you watch one talk from Google I.O., this is the one to watch. And what's really great, I think what happened this week was Max put together a demo using a framework we all use. And it's a really, it's very easy to pick up and demonstrated. I think when Jake's talk came out, you could, if you squinted, you could see how the future was going to look. But I think Max connected more of those dots together and gave it to us in a usable form where as a developer, you can just go play with his demo and ignoring the bits he added to make parts of the issues of the API work, it just feels like you're building a single page app. And it's just, if you feel so productive, you feel as productive as you probably did when you first used like a framework like Next, except you don't need as much heavy JavaScript. So I think it's, it points to a really compelling future where a lot of sites that didn't necessarily need to be single page apps could be built in a more easier to maintain and performant way as a multi-page app. And that's what I think is really fascinating and exciting about that. I think it'll unfortunately just take a while for the, the standard to settle and for other browsers to adopt it. But rather than say, and this was something I've, I've heard people talk about at conferences, they'll ask browser vendors, could you just bake React into the browser? And in a sense, people thought about that in jQuery and then jQuery went away. And to be fair, we did bake parts of jQuery, some of the lessons of it into the browser, but in a non-library specific way. 
I think the shared element transition API is an example of the browser vendor saying, what can we take out of here that we think is a universal good, regardless of what the underlying framework is, and make that easier so you don't have to spend cycles building that. To which I, I expect you could use this API with Next or React, and it will just be less JavaScript they'll have to ship for that particular use case, which is the animations. It's essentially all frameworks potentially could use it. But what's really disruptive here is it really closes the gap in experience for the multi-page apps, such that you may never have to reach for a single page app framework. I think there will still be use cases where a single page app makes a lot of sense. So if you're building Gmail or if you're building a dashboard like Sumo Logic or something like that, you're probably still going to want to use a framework like React. Although now that I mention it, the folks at from Ruby on Rails, DHH and his colleagues built Hey, which is an email program like Gmail. And it doesn't use the shared element transition API. It uses more like what we talked about earlier, Hotwire and Stimulus. I have not personally used it, but it is written without one of these heavy client-side libraries. I'd love to hear from anybody who's used the, used the Hey. I have not personally. But it overall, I'd say this points to an easier to maintain future. And it gets back to how web pages used to be in terms of just write HTML, CSS, JavaScript, a sprinkle of it, and then the browser handled the rest. This is an example where the browser helps you again in a way that it hasn't in a while. I think maybe on a related note, the long arc of history is many of the, like I was talking about at the beginning with work stuff, many of our clients are not exactly bleeding edge. And mm. a lot of the apps we work on are over, or at least a decade old. And now they're finally deciding to put money into upgrading them. They're all multi-page applications. Mm. Kind of funny that yeah, we're, that's all Java or ASP.NET server rendered. We're that a bunch of JavaScript and then, and then all the client stuff happens on the client. Um, and then, but if they would have rebuilt those apps even three or four years ago, the, the correct way to do it was a single page app. And then now they basically, these clients are, if they do invest in their apps again, they're probably just going to be completely skipping the single page app era of web development. So it'd be, it's, it's interesting how, how the, the wheels of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's what, what's old is new again. And it was, I was thinking about this. We may look back on this era as a potential blip where we were confused about when to use which technology where in the web. I think like one potential area that will, could embrace this a lot is e-commerce. That could example. go on for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> that era. Yeah, it could go on for well, a lifetime. It's not, like, it, it's not... single-page apps built in the last ten years, so oh, they're yeah. and I, they're not going to go away. Yeah. But it's going to be like I think what you had said earlier. Everybody three or four years ago were like, if you're going to put anything on the web, it should be client-side React. It should be a single-page app. Like that era is changing, and that's the era in which Jamstack came of age. And even Jamstack, its definition has been evolving to embrace a little bit more of the dynamic server rendering, as we've seen over the definition evolving well, over the last few years. Yeah, go ahead. Single page apps became popular in an era when edge computing didn't exist or was incredibly yes. expensive. So the best thing you could do was package up all your JavaScript into a single file and put it on a CDN. That was yep. the best, fastest way to get your JavaScript to the end user. So, of course, you'd put it all together in once and have them only have to hit the server once. 
Yeah, that's the only edge compute you had was that. Sorry, Dave, I think you want to say something. Oh, no worries. I was just, I was going to wait. But yeah, I was just going to mention that what's interesting is I think I cannot get that hand to go away. But I I think what we're like seeing really is I think when single page apps started becoming more popular, right? Like people thought of this as the way to do things now. Right? Mm-hmm. I think what we're starting to get back to and starting to realize now as time has gone on and as we've gone through that primary wave and we're starting to discover how to make multi-page apps a lot more dynamic and smooth and accessible for our users. I think I think that both are still going to be incredibly important because I think that there's still a lot of use cases now. And actually, as we go on, more and more use cases are emerging where web applications really used to be like pretty light. They used to be essentially like documents or directories and even like e-commerce, for example, right? It's like in a lot of ways, e-commerce could be broken down into essentially just being a directory with real-time access to your data. And I think I think that where we're going to start seeing things like single-page application frameworks go is solving the problems of not how do we make a fairly simple like user experience, but how do we build essentially a native application in the browser, a native application that needs access to device APIs, a native application that can work entirely offline or with no internet connection, or those are the same thing. But the point still stands there. Having a lot less access to the real-time data and information that you need for a modern web app to work, I think is where we start to, like where single-page application frameworks are going to become more and more useful and where they already are useful. And I won't dive deep into it now, as Scott already mentioned, but I have an application that I maintain that is a progressive web app. And so it it essentially is a client-side only app with the server side being like a progressive enhancement on top of the application. I think that just the use cases of single page apps and multi-page apps is just going to diverge. Yeah, and I think you hit on a couple things there. One is that I think you're totally right. And in fact, you called it like building a native app in the browser. I think there was keeping up with the Joneses for the web, which was to try and say, we can not only match the experience for users with single page apps, we also now as web developers, we can build things with the same level of sophistication and potentially imitating that architecture and thinking, oh, we should just have an API first driven architecture as much as possible all the time for the web where it didn't necessarily make sense. And I think there's definitely an element there, but yeah, I don't think the single page app use cases will go away. I think it goes back to in the early to mid 2000s, there was this split between the browser vendors and the W3C, which was the governing body for the web standards. And they had this schism over whether the web should be a document viewer, whether the browser, I should say more properly, is a document viewer or it's an application platform, a runtime. And the W3C was more towards the, it's a document viewer and they had the semantic web and it was all about just embedding more and more information into the document. And then there was this other group called I don't know, it's pronounced the Watwig, W-H-A-T-W-G. And their view was, no, the browser is going to be the new run and you're going to build proper applications in there. It was like, let's take at the time what people were calling Ajax and then just turn it up to 11. And I guess the answer is it's both. It depends what your use case is. It might just be, as you were describing, a document viewer with really nice styling And then the other cases where it really is an application platform, right? You've got, I guess, Craigslist or e-commerce you're saying on the left is documents. And then you've got something like Figma, which is definitely an application that lives in the browser. I certainly wouldn't try to do that 
in a multi-page app architecture. Nothing uses WASM. I think you're right. It really depends on the use case and you should start there just like you should with any technology decision. It's not about what thing is the best all the time. It's about what matches your use case. Yeah, there's one more thing I want to add on to that actually too, which is just that the other factor that I think that we often is the actual talent availability, right? So mm. shifting everyone to single page application architecture and the desire for that makes sense when the majority of the majority of desired talent is working in that space. Because at the end of the day, regardless of the approach you choose, whether it makes sense or not, is less important than being able to hire people that can actually build the thing that you want to build. And so I think that actually was another factor in so many companies starting to adopt the single page app approach is that as full stack developers, at least, um, it, it can be a more enjoyable environment than working with like typical traditional server rendered pages. And again, depends a lot on the use case, depends on what you're actually building. But as more and more developers transition to becoming skilled with a single page application framework and maybe not as familiar, especially in like in the last like few years where newer developers are coming in with essentially no experience in the server yeah. rendered page environment. It's definitely another aspect to consider is that if you want to hire people and you need to hire people that are going to do a great job, then you might just need to use the technology they're used to, even if it doesn't necessarily make the most sense. Yeah, no, that's a, there's a lot of great points in there. It required a certain level of sophistication as a developer. Um, and those are the people I think probably pushing more for this type of single page ar app architecture, but then it created a bottleneck on the supply of React developers. And if you want to get anything done, you needed a this much more developer-y role that you have in historically to ship a, an application. And it's a really important part, also we've talked about in the past, when you pick a framework. Whereas regular web development was, you could pick up jQuery pretty simply and you weren't, you didn't have to have as much necessarily background to pick up, say, jQuery as you need to pick up React. And the other thing you brought up that I think is really interesting is we do have people who came of age and learned of JavaScript and web in, let's call it the React single page app heyday. And to them, React is the browser, right? Like vanilla JavaScript seems very foreign. And so there, there may actually be resistance. And it might be, seem crazy to say that people who like have to relearn JavaScript in, in a way that there isn't React necessarily there. That's potentially an interesting angle I hadn't considered. Arguably though, for many years, most JavaScript developers have not actually known JavaScript. Uh, you mean, <laughs> what do you mean for many years now? Do you mean like, yeah. I mean, since essentially since the days of becoming prevalent, That's there were true, a, lot of, a lot of developers in my experience did not actually understand the difference between jQuery and, jo and vanilla JavaScript and would always pull jQuery in as a, a decent sized library. It's like they would always yep. have to pull it in even for the most minuscule client-side reactivity or interactive feature they needed. And that came down to the same problem. It's like you, they didn't learn the fundamentals, they learned the framework or the library. And that's the same now, right? Like we have people who have only been learning development for six months who are actually somewhat productive or efficient in React, for example. But that doesn't mean that they understand like the lower level fundamentals. And that's not a problem when the, it's not necessarily a problem because in, a, in our environment, the job we get paid to do is to produce the product that our clients want or the companies we work for are trying to build and having a higher level abstraction like React and understanding that versus writing everything with vanilla JavaScript is the point.
really. You'll always need people that understand it at a deeper level. But the more and more we come up with these better abstractions and these more comprehensive frameworks, the more we're going to have more developers in the field who are just further and further away from what you could call like the bare metal of the browser. Yeah, actually, and to your point, I do remember that happening where people would, they wouldn't know how to use certain things without jQuery. And that's why I think we started baking lessons of jQuery into the browser and why people would say, hey, can we just bake jQuery itself into the browser? Instead, we took the APIs, which is maybe a little bit smarter, but it reflects what you're describing. Um, Yeah, it's definitely, I guess I'd forgotten that. It's just that the surface area is smaller, so it seemed not as big a gap to me between vanilla JS and jQuery versus vanilla JS and React. But yeah, it was certainly a new abstraction on which people didn't know necessarily what was underneath the floorboards. It's a really good call out. Yeah, and I think that the difference between the two or the three, right? Like the gap between jQuery and vanilla JavaScript is much smaller than the gap between jQuery and React. If you don't peel back the library and take a look or ever work directly with the underlying language, you wouldn't know how similar it was. I think it was like, I don't know, around 10-ish years ago. I've been learning slash doing this for about 11 or so years. And I think around like 10-ish years ago, I learned jQuery first. I also was one of the people who learned jQuery before I learned JavaScript. And once I started peeling it back and trying to understand how to do things without jQuery, I realized how similar jQuery was to JavaScript. It really was just trying to, what would you call it, standardize the way that you write JavaScript code because browsers were so inconsistent. And that's all it was. It's like most of jQuery actually was very similar to the underlying JavaScript methods, but you wouldn't know that if you never dug into it. Yeah, I get your point. Like, it doesn't matter at a certain level, you know, how thin the abstraction is. If you don't peel it back, it's still as opaque to you either way. Okay, we're actually 10 minutes over our usual. I just want to thank everyone for joining us and look forward to talking to you all next week. Scott, do you want to close sure. us out? Yeah, thank you all so much for joining us. Greatly appreciate everybody stopping in today and listening. If you're listening to the recording, thank you a bunch as well. And be sure to, if you got any value from anybody up here today that was speaking, be sure to click on their image there and follow them because I'm sure that if you got value from them here, you are going to get value from them elsewhere too. And if you want to give a share to your JavaScript jam as well, we would love that, of course. And if you're not on and getting the newsletter from us yet, don't miss out any longer. Go to javascriptjam.com, click on subscribe, and you will be able to get on the newsletter and hear all the latest and greatest things in web development and JavaScript in the near future.